You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Today, we're joined with special guest, Chad Carson, who's an active real estate investor and entrepreneur from Clemson, South Carolina. When he's not investing, you'll find Chad traveling with his wife and two kids playing pickup basketball, hiking, learning something new, and helping build trails in his local community. He also writes and teaches at coachcarson.com about using real estate investing to retire early and do what matters. And, you know, today's topic is really interesting. We're going to be talking about the small and mighty approach to real estate investing, which really fits well with the point we've been trying to make over the last few weeks that investing in real estate has powerful tax and wealth building benefits, even if you're not using strategies like reps or the short-term rental loophole. Stay tuned as we dive into real estate investing and how it can help you generate tax advantage income and achieve the life of your dreams without working crazy hours. We're going to get into all of that in just one moment. Hey, real estate CPAs out there. Are you feeling worn out by the routine of conventional CPA firms? Well, listen up. We're hiring and we might just have what you're looking for. Our firm breaks the mold. We're not for those satisfied with the usual grind. And if you're someone who's passionate about excellence and innovation, here's what we have to offer. Break free of endless time tracking. Join one of the fastest growing CPA firms as listed by the Inc. 5000. Dive deep into the specialization of real estate. Be at the forefront of cutting edge technology. Enjoy the luxury of being 100% remote. Yes, say goodbye to those daily commutes. Reap performance-based rewards that truly mirror your contributions and not just the time that you put in. And collaborate with some of the brightest minds in the industry. We're actively recruiting senior tax associates, tax supervisors, and tax managers for our U.S.-based roles. If you're interested, you can learn more and apply today by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com careers. We're looking to make hiring decisions by the end of October, so if you are interested, now is your chance. Again, you can learn more and apply today by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com careers. We look forward to hearing from you, but for now, we're going to dive right into today's episode. Chad, thanks so much for taking time to join us today. Can you give our listeners a little information on your background, how you got involved with rental real estate? Well, thanks for having me. And my career is about 21 years in the real estate business, but I'm, I'm 43 years old. So I got into this right after college. I was 23 years old and I had just gotten out of college with a biology degree and a German minor and I played football. I had like, I knew nothing about like, what am I going to do as an entrepreneur? But I started a uh, business partner and I started flipping houses and we just kind of figured out how to do it and use private money and figure out how to use other people's money. A lot of the tax strategies, which y'all talk about, were always a, a really important part of our, our growth strategy and bringing other people who had money on to invest with us. But sort of after the early years of just flipping houses just to make a living, I decided this was just a lot of fun and I enjoyed the business. And we started buying over time rental properties as well. And that was always really my kind of dream. I didn't even know how to describe it when I first got into it, but it was always about the freedom and the flexibility and the leverage of your time and how perhaps you could plant these seeds like a fruit tree early in your career how those, those trees kind of grow up and eventually you can start picking the fruit of those trees by rental income, by being able to live off that rental income. 
And so that was always my goal was the financial freedom side of things. And eventually my wife and I kind of started incrementally taking advantage of that. We've traveled a lot, but my wife's a Spanish teacher. So back in 2009, before we had kids, we went for four months and backpacked around South America and sort of put our real estate business on hold. And that was a sort of taste of little mini retirements and enjoying it. And over time, we've done more of those. Since we've had kids, we lived a year and a half in Ecuador and uh, Cuenca, Ecuador. And then we also, this last year, went to Spain for a year. So a lot of my real estate journey, happy to talk about the details of it, is about sort of how do you reverse engineer so that you can have this kind of big spaces of time and quality of life and be able to use the real estate to help you do that. That's very interesting. And that's in stark contrast to what a lot of people want to do these days, which is I go all in, go 10x. People trying to qualify as real estate professional when uh, maybe that's not the best path for everyone. So I know you have a contrarian view on this and that you believe you don't have to go 10x or have the go big or go home mentality. Would you be able to kind of give an overview of how your small and mighty approach works and what the advantages of it are over the 10x mentality? Yeah, this is this is the way I learn. Maybe some other people listening to this are like this too. I sort of have to touch the fire to learn. So I'm, I'm going to tell everybody like a little brief story about it, how I learned by trying to go big. Like I, when I first started uh, as a real estate investor, it's really fun and alluring. Like I played sports and the idea of going big and it sort of challenges you as a human being. Like, oh, you could grow, you could go, you know, the best people in the whole business are the ones who go the biggest. And so we started trying to flip a lot of houses, try to own a lot of properties. The funny thing was we didn't have a, a specific idea on actually how is this going to get us the freedom we were talking about. We just knew that if we go big and make a lot of money, the, the freedom will take care of itself. But we hit 2007. So we started in 2003, like four or five years later, we grew. And in 2007, we had 33 closings. Like we bought properties 33 times. Some of those are multifamily, some are flips. So, so there's a variety of types of properties. But we also had this thing looming called the Great Recession, which was like on the horizon. And we could kind of see that coming. We survived that. We did okay. We had to you know, buckle down and figure it out. But my business partner and I, it was a scary enough time that we start, had to do some self-reflection and think about it. It's like, we're really busy. We've made some money. That's great. But we also have taken a lot of risk. Like, what is it we got into this business for again? And we actually made a list of things. We were like, and for me, my list back in 2007, we just got married that year, was I want to go hiking in the middle of the day. I live in a beautiful part of the country in Clemson, South Carolina. We have trails. We have waterfalls. I play pickup basketball. You mentioned that in my intro. I always throw that one out there as the, you know, one of the most important things in life, playing pickup basketball. But I like to play pickup basketball in the middle of the day. I like to travel. I wanted to, if I had a family, I wanted to be present with my kids. So some of those things cost money for sure. But what I noticed, at least in 2007, was the business model I was building out and the growth trajectory I was on was eating up 100% of my time and then some. And so most of the stuff I had on my list required more time than money. And so money is important, but it's just a currency. It's just a vehicle to get to that other stuff. And I was using up all my time. And so we started trying to think about how could we reverse engineer this business? And we were inspired by books like The 4-Hour Workweek, uh, another financial independence book called Your Money or Your Life, a real estate book called uh, Building Wealth One House at a Time by John Schaub. He's kind of a mentor of mine. And all of that together, we started thinking about, well, maybe we could have like a little simpler approach and we could start with the lifestyle and figure out how many properties would we actually need because we've gotten up to 60, 70 units at that point. And we've grown a little bit since then, but we really have put it more on a like a steady pace since then. We're not trying to like light the world on fire. We're just trying to make progress, move forward. And I like to think about it like we take these breaks. Like if you're climbing a mountain, we take these plateaus where you take some time off for a year. Maybe you don't grow, maybe you don't maximize your your optimize your net worth to be as big as somebody else's, but you're, you're capitalizing and you're cashing in on the life and the time and the, the freedom that you always wanted to have in the first place. 
that's an excellent concept. I think a lot of people get caught up in, in, in to your point, going big, sucking up all their time and not having time to build a life. But uh, real estate can be a really powerful tool to help you gain financial freedom. So how is specifically like if, if you're going to build a smaller portfolio, like what are some things that maybe listeners should start thinking about in order to kind of articulate, well, how many properties do I need? How do I know what the least amount of properties I need to get to get to where I want to go? Yeah, I like to use simple math. Like I know we can get fancy with calculus and all sorts of algebra, but like you can just do the kind of addition and subtraction here with real estate. That's one of the beautiful things about at least goal setting with real estate. And so I, I just put out there like every market's different, right? Every amount of rent's different. But just think about if you had 10 properties and let's say you had 10 single family houses, they rented for about 1800 bucks, maybe a little bit more. You know, the rents have been going up the last couple of years, but just sort of in the Southeast and the Midwest and Texas, there's places where you can buy $2,000, $1,800 rentals. And let's say you bought 10 of those and over a 10 year period, you eventually got those properties paid off. So you paid the debt off. I know I said it, that's kind of sacrilegious in real estate world, right? We can talk about that one too. But let's just say you did 10 properties. And let's say each one of those properties after paying all your taxes, your insurance, your maintenance, your management fees, and that's about a thousand bucks per month. Well, 10 properties times a thousand bucks per month with no debt on them is about $10,000 per month or $120,000 per year. And I know there's a lot of details that go from like nothing to having 10 properties, but in the big scheme of things, owning 10 properties is a very, very part-time job. Like I, my business partner and I have more than that. We have 33 properties. We have 99 units and some of those like multifamily properties. But the people I know who own 10 properties, this is like a four hour per month kind of part-time management gig that makes you $120,000 per year. Now, maybe people listening to this, my number is 200,000 or maybe my number is 60,000, but like you can do the math to kind of extrapolate that. But the number is not 150. The number is not a thousand. The number is more like you know, 10, 20, 30 properties. Be very conservative with them. And the point I make there is like, that's the math. That's like the simple math. But the difficult part about the journey that I've found for myself and for other people I've talked to, like we all go through this early growth phase. Like growth is great. Like you should optimize for growth. You should leverage. You should do all these things you learn in the real estate world to help you go from like a $10,000 nest egg to a million dollar nest egg. Like that's great. But what I see is a lot of people kind of have this fork in the road where they get used to growing and they kind of get addicted to growing. And there's a fork in the road where you could say, you know what? I think I'll, instead of just optimizing for growth, I'm going to optimize for reducing my risk by paying off some debt or reducing my debt on some properties at least, or I'm going to optimize for increasing my income, or I'm going to optimize for just having a low hassle life, not having to be grinding for the next five to 10 years. It's like, those are sometimes contrasting goals. And so it's great to be optimized for growth for a period of your life, but I kind of look at it like a season. So let's go three to five years of all in, let's grow. And then let's take some time to take some chips off the table, reduce your risk, take a break. And that seasonality of growth has been a much more satisfying and also effective way for me to run my real estate business because I'm consistently like re-energized. I'm not having to like grind for 15 years at one thing, always moving the goalposts, always growing. Over time, you're still going to grow, but you're, you're also getting to enjoy it along the way. Just curious. I know that this is probably different for everybody, but what's your season cycle? Are we talking months, years? What does that look like? Part of it depends on recessions. Like my first season, like took a little bit longer when we hit the Great Recession. But like that very first starter to growth phase for me was 2003 to 2007. That was four or five years. 
And then we had to kind of pull back for a year, just like, all right, are we going to survive the recession? Let's like save some money. Let's, let's, let's yeah. figure things out. And then we went through another growth phase from 2009, uh, what was that, seven to 2015. Like we were really kind of growing again. So we, we weren't financially independent in 2007, but by the time we got to 2016, we'd hit another plateau and we had kind of this opportunity to keep on growing. Or we took the choice of kind of like a middle ground where we said, all right, we have we had like six hundred thousand bucks set aside in some cash because we've been successful. We'd sold some properties, we had some good cash flow. We decided to like on the next deal, let's just do it a little bit more conservatively. Like we put 50% down instead of 20% down. And we started even paying off a few, like all of our any like little, you know, kind of hanging on private loan debt that was a higher interest rate. We started paying those off. So it's sort of a it's a process, but I think three to seven years is a real estate cycles go in three to seven years life cycle that like our attention spans don't last for 15 years. Like I think we have these little smaller cycles that work for us. So I know I personally struggle with this wrapping my mind around what that number needs to be, right? You talked about 10 rentals, $10,000 a month in cash flow, assuming that they're all paid off. And I know these are very basic example, but what I struggle with is what happens if you have multiple capex events in one year and you don't have another income stream anymore and this is your only income stream can you talk a little bit about that like you know if you're pulling 10k a month from your rentals we'll call it net just to just to keep it simple so that's my actual cash flow what does my life budget need to look like to make sure that i'm not setting myself up for some unlucky failure later down the line it's the exact right question because this is what I've been living since 2015, 16, because I, I live off my rental income. Like I, I do what I preach and I've had some issues like with, you know, CapEx this month, we normally net 30 grand and now we're netting you know, as a business, but then we're all of a sudden this month, we're netting 10 grand. Oh, congratulations. We have 10,000 to split between the partners. And the way I've solved that for ourselves is well, there's two things. One is you got to get really good at your bookkeeping, which I know you guys are teaching all that. I, I'm such a big fan of understanding your numbers, like actually understanding your numbers. You guys get to see behind the scenes and see how many people talk about what they make and what they actually make. And I know, believe it or not, people like those things are different. Like what people say they make is not really ten thousand dollars a yeah. month. Yeah, so it, it happens. It happens. It is uh, so different. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm talking about are like real numbers, like actually having a spreadsheet and seasoning your property and saying, you know what, this is over the last five to seven years, my property has on the low end had an NOI and net operating income of this on the high end is this. And so let's like budget with our low end or, you know, just be conservative on that. But then the other thing we've had to do is have big cash reserves in order to kind of pad the, you know, the ups and downs. Cause it really is a roller coaster. Like it's, you know, you might have an average that's a straight line, but then the, the actual cash flow goes up and it goes down and it goes up and it goes down. And so we just have a huge cash reserve. Like if, if we six figure cash reserve all the time, and then we just basically our own kind of working capital bank. And so if we have a bad month, and we can't do, and we're having to distribute more than what we normally, you know, what we're bringing in early in the early days, we'd have to eat into some of that reserve. And then when we have some good months, we'd fill that reserve back up. And I kind of look at like a, a bucket with water, you know, like you're, you're living off like the cash flow, like the waterfall of water. But if that start, starts not coming in as much, then you got to tap into your reservoir of reserves a little bit. But if you're running your numbers correctly, and here that's the, why bookkeeping is such a critical piece of it, you can then count on it more. You can actually look at your books and say, you know, this is what a property like this produces. And what we found is like, because we were looking at our bookkeeping and working with our CPA, we started pruning off some of the bad properties that were super inconsistent. Their maintenance was way high. The tenants were always moving out. And so by understanding your books, you can then 
over time, start not only optimizing your financing, but optimize your portfolio and prune off the properties that are performing not as well, even though they look pretty and everybody thinks they're great, they're just not performing. And so in, in the end, you have this mature portfolio of with a good capital structure, plus really good solid properties. And that makes it more reliable to actually live off of it. That makes a lot of sense. I, For some reason, I wasn't even thinking about just assessing how your properties are performing over some period of time, whether it be 12 months, 24 months, 36 months. But after you have that track record, you're going to have a pretty good idea of what a good month looks like, what a bad month looks like, and what to expect on average. And then you could effectively like set your monthly personal spend less than the average of all the properties. And you're probably going to be Okay. Yeah. Or maybe there's some percentage or something, but I always have a problem with the percentages because they don't scale yeah. very well. It's like my budget needs to be 20% of my net income from the rentals. It's like, well, that's that's a very different number if it's a $1,000 a month rental or a $100,000 a month rental. I know. Yeah. We, 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 we just get really basic. Like we've increased our distributions from our LLC over time. So I just, we kind of force our hand. We're like, all right, here, you know, at one point it was 3,000 bucks a month. Like we just need to pay ourselves as owners 3,000 bucks a month. And let's just see if our bank account goes up or down. <laughs> like, like if it's if it's getting down to like we're almost we're below like our, our number here, like our business is losing cash. Like we're having to feed the reserves in every month. And if you do that two or three months in a row, like you know you got a problem. We need to like fix this hole. And we did that for you know during the recession, it was like up and down and up and down. But we've gotten to the point now where we increase that distribution we make to the partners and our bank account's getting bigger and bigger. And I just have some like basic KPIs. Like I, I'm a little behind on my bookkeeping at the moment, but I I, uh -oh. I, I catch up on, we, in detail. You know, we but shame I, people on this podcast if you're behind on your bookkeeping. <laughs> yeah, six six shame, months, shame. man. This is, this, is, this is bad. But I do look at my KPIs. So like I just look at like, all right, here's how much my property managers paid me this month. Here's how much I expected that to be. You know, are we 20% off? Are we just about the same? And so you just kind of, you see these like basic numbers. And if that number, if those numbers are okay, then great. If they're not, then you dig into it more. You go ahead and kind of ask what's, what's happening here. How do you decide how much you should put in cash reserves? How do you come up with that number? Because I'm, I'm just like, and maybe this is the, you know, sometimes I get more like accountant risk averse versus like being the entrepreneurial risk taking. Yeah. So whenever I think about this type of stuff, I'm always like accountant risk averse. Yeah. And for me, I'm like, I need a massive cash cushion because you just never know when like a COVID's going to happen or something. And all of a sudden people aren't paying you for yeah. four to six months. I mean, how do you factor that type of stuff in when you're thinking about how do I build my cash cushion to ensure that the way that I structure my personal life isn't going to be negatively impacted should some black swan event occur? I'll give you a couple of rule of thumbs that we try to follow, but I think the main rule is like the more the better, but because see, the, the downside of not having enough cash reserves is you go out of business and you're done. Like that's, that's like a huge, huge risk. The downside of having too much reserves is you don't optimize your return. You're just, you're, you got some wasted cash sitting there. Like that's a no brainer. Like that, if, if you're in this for like the next 50 years, like that's a no brainer decision to have too much cash reserve because because then the worst case is you just grow a little slower. So what does that number mean though? Like when people come to me and want like coaching or just kind of consulting on their like five rental property business, I'm like $5,000 per rental to start off. I just say that because you got five rentals, that's 25 grand. That gets you to like a, a scale that you can, you can cover heating and air costs. You can cover some weird stuff. You can cover a few months of vacancy. So I, I kind of see it as getting to a basic threshold. Like you shouldn't, when you first start, you shouldn't have less than like you know, 20, 30 grand in the bank. But then once you get up to, you know, you're up to 30 properties, like should you have $5,000 per property? Like 
maybe, I don't know, like it helps you sleep well at night. I, I kind of switched over more to a, what is my operating cost? Like what are my taxes, my insurance, my maintenance, things that I have to pay, even if the rent didn't come in and sort of do it like a personal budget and say, yeah. all right, six months of, of, of my operating expenses. If I stopped collecting rent for the next six months, could I cover that? Is it 12 months? Like that's where the, like just your gut feeling, like the more, the better. Right. But like we, we've been a little more, that's where we, we've been a little more aggressive and we're like, okay, four to six months. We're pretty, we're pretty okay with that. I have friends who do 12 months, like Scott Trench over at bigger pockets. I always remember him talking about these huge runways and his business. And it just depends on who you are, what your comfort level is and, and how much income you have from other sources. Like my business partner and I feel pretty confident about our ability to create income and generate income. And so we're willing to be a little more aggressive, but some people are much more risk averse and they might want to have just a huge, like if you're leaving your job, you're leaving your W2 job and you just want to know that this thing's solid. I would say have a huge cash reserve. Don't don't play the little four to six month game. Play like the twelve month to twenty four month cash reserve instead. Gotta imagine it takes a lot of financial discipline to not only set that cash reserve up, but then not tap into it from time to time. Especially if you don't have that W two job anymore, and this is your sole source of income. Just a comment. I don't really expect anything from you on that, but I, I just thinking through it as you were talking, I was just like, man, if I was, if you like mess your numbers up or something, it would be super tempting to tap into that cash reserve, but you can't do that, right? Because the cash reserve is there for that unexpected capex that comes down and is there so that you don't have to change your personal life or make major adjustments. So you yeah. got to be careful. What do you do with your cash reserve? So let's say that I'm the type of person that. I am super nervous and I want a massive cash reserve, but I'm also, you know, prudent. I don't want it to just sit there and earn 1% or half percent a year. What do you do with your cash reserve? We were very stupid with that. We're not stupid. When the interest rates were low, it was just like, ah, we're just sitting in the bank and businesses don't seem to have as many good options as like my personal money. I could go put it in a high yield savings account at Capital One or something and get two or 3% back in the day. These days though, it's kind of interesting. Like I'm, I'm really high on like just treasury bonds, five and a half percent treasury bonds are pretty cool. So like making a ladder, like maybe you have like six months and just like super liquid savings account and then set up a, you know, set up a bank account at one of the big banks and have some ladders of short-term bonds. So then you have like every month you have some short-term term bonds maturing. And right now they're six month bonds are paying five and a half percent or 5.2%. Wow. Like that's pretty crazy. Like that's, I mean, all the government problems aside and are they going to make the budget? Like one of the most low risk investments in the world is paying you 5.25%. That's, this is a pretty good time to have cash reserves at the moment. Effectively risk-free, right? That's what they, that's what they refer to as a risk-free yeah. rate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not even long-term. You know, it's rotating every four to six months. You get the money back and you're getting 5.25% on an annual basis. Like that's, I don't know how things go. I'm not good at predicting the future, but I've never seen something like that. I haven't heard about that. Maybe the early 80s had some times like that, but we're in an unusual time where it's a good time to be a saver. It's a tough time to be a borrower. And so it's kind of flopped around a little bit. So if you got cash, you can buy properties now. You can put the money in the bank. It's not too bad. Great insights. Great insights. Now, uh, I have a few questions about how you built your team. And I know you have a book you just came out. But before we get to that stuff, just kind of want to circle back. So where you are right now is the mountaintop for a lot of people. It's what people want to achieve, the financial freedom, to be able to live off their rental income. How did you end up getting to the place where you had the capital to build your portfolio to where you are today? Was it from earned income from like a job or a business? Like, How did you get to where you are today from like that perspective? 
a bunch of leverage. Early on, it was just using other people's money. Because when I graduated from college, I was living in the spare bedroom of my business partner. who had He was the rich guy in our partnership because he had an actual job, but he had an internet business back in 2001 and 2002 and three, which was like, banks didn't understand that. They're like, we're not going to give you a loan for an internet business. Like, So he was like one step ahead of me, but we were both entrepreneurs. We had a, a little bit of capital just to kind of cover our living expenses. And then what we got good at though, in the first couple of years was finding really good deals that we could buy for like 70 cents on the dollar, like all in like repairs and everything. Like I just got good at hustling, driving for dollars, sending direct mail, finding pre-foreclosures. Like that was my skill set. was I had a ton of time I was willing to do whatever it takes to go find these little diamonds in the rough. I learned how to just talk to people with money. I would talk to private lenders who became my private lenders. But my very first one was a guy named Louis Stone, Dr. Stone. And he was a business professor at Clemson University. And when I graduated with a degree in biology, I realized pretty quickly, I was like, maybe I should go take some business classes and accounting. And so I went back just for extra classes. And he was a management professor. And he talked about in class about owning rental properties. And so I started bugging him after class. And he let me ride around with him. But about a year and a half later, was when I, my business partner, I got our first deal under contract and we, we got it under contract by talking to him and saying, I think we can find good deals here in the Clemson area. If we find a good deal, would you put up the money? Cause we don't have the money. And he said, yes, like I'll, I'll find a way to put up the money. And on our very first deal, we, we complicated it more than we needed to, but he, we just put forward a little partnership an LLC. He went to the bank and put 20% down and got a loan. He paid for the repairs on this property. We were just along for the ride. Basically we found the deal, we managed it and then we flipped it. We just flipped the house and made like 12 grand. We, made, we had to split 12 grand on our very first deal. But then that aha moment was like, okay, other people have money. I can find a deal. And on the next deals we did with him and with other people, we just borrowed the money as a private lender. We said, hey, how about we buy the property? You loan us the money. We'll pay you 10% interest, but can you loan us all the money? So he would loan us 70% of the full value of the property after repairs. And we just had to make sure we bought it below 70 cents on the dollar and we could fund it with his money or some of the other private lenders we got. And that was as as simple as that sounds. That's kind of how we got started. And then I got much more creative to to buy rental properties. It doesn't work at 10% interest. You got to figure out other things. So we started getting, talking to sellers, whatever I was negotiating with them to see if they would finance it to us. And I started getting uh, seller financing. My first property I bought like that was from Ed and Eileen. They were retired Methodist ministers and they got a letter from me in the mail and saying, I want to buy your house. They had this brick, little brick, three bedroom, two bath house. It's a nice little rental house. And they called me up and Eileen's like, I was about to list my house with a realtor. I showed her your letter that you sent me. She said, never work with a real estate investor. That's the worst, last thing you want to do. But I think I, I looked you up on Google and I think I'm going to check you out. So I, had, I came over there. They set up these little card tables to sit in their like vacant house and talk to each other. And Ed Eileen taught me about listening and learning somebody's story. And I learned that they had this as a rental property, but they used to live in it. They don't want to rent it anymore, even though they like the income. They're retired. They really need this money. And so I made them an offer to pay them a few thousand dollars down, which is all I had really. And I would pay them monthly payments that would help them subsidize their retirement. And then I would manage the property. I would take care of the tenants. And so they took a chance on me, but I learned about seller financing and building a relationship with sellers and using their equity to essentially become your bank. And so I've done a lot of deals like that. I've done a lot of deals with private money. And essentially I learned how to put deals together. And when you do that, you can then find other sources of capital, even if you can't go to the bank, even if you can't put the money down. 
that's an excellent path. I think there's a lot of insights in there for people who are wondering how to acquire properties if they have a lot of time. I know you coach a lot of people. What would you have for advice for people who are maybe in that opposite situation to where you found yourself in, right? Someone who maybe they have a job, maybe they have a business. They don't have that time to go out and hustle per se, to go find all these deals. What's your advice for that type of person? Yeah, it's kind of the complete opposite. So you either need to have the time or the money, like the time and expertise or the money or both. But if you have a lot of money with little time, you don't need to buy the great deals like I did. I Maybe mean, it'd be awesome if you could buy them for 70 cents on the dollar, but you don't need to. Like your your biggest engine, if you if you're making three or five hundred thousand dollars per year, you got good credit, but you have very little time. I would go buy the highest quality rental I could that made pretty good cash flow. Like I, I would go out and buy a property that maybe I could get it, you know, 10% off, 15% off, but the cash flow made sense. But it's a super low hassle kind of rental property. That's just not going to be a hassle to me. And you're basically putting that money into your savings account of a rental property. And then you start using the tax benefits and a lot of the other kind of built-in benefits of owning a rental property. And then over time, those properties with very little of your personal time, then grow and you compound. And at some point, if you want to take the leap from your job, then you can get into flipping houses and finding deals and doing all that. But I think you have to assess where you are in the real estate spectrum. Are you an entrepreneur, kind of hustler kind of person? Are you the money? Are you somewhere in between? And now I'm not the hustler anymore. Like, I, I don't want to do all that. I've been there. I've done that. I'm the money guy. Like, I'm, I'm loaning money to people who are flipping houses. I'm investing money with an upstart person who I know and I trust and who is buying a short-term rental. Like, I, did, I bought a, this year, we bought a, an eight-unit building, kind of a boutique hotel in Kalispell, Montana, with some partners on the ground. And they, they have none of their own money in the deal. My business partner and I put all the money in, yet I'm very happy with that. Like it's, we're taking a chance together. I think it's going to grow over time. So it's, it's kind of funny how that works. You, you have to pick which side of the, uh, the equation you're going to be on. But if you don't have a lot of time, you're going to have to find either the operator who you can invest with, or you just got to buy properties that don't need a lot of operating time. They're just super simple, vanilla. Like I love those little simple single family houses. I know those don't, those aren't like the sexiest kind of investment, but man, are they so easy to manage? And if you look at the long-term value of those, they go up in value over time. They make good cash flow that gets turns into great cash flow eventually. And those are those are awesome for high earners. Now, those are great insights. First, you got to pick out where you are in the spectrum and start there. And then eventually, as you kind of grow in the space, you can kind of shift. Like you went from yeah. being the hustler to the money partner, and maybe you go to the money partner, and maybe later on you're hustling for a while. I guess it could go in all different types of ways. Um, one fascinating thing I, I read before we hopped on today was that you have a two hour work week, thanks to the simplicity that you created with teams and systems. Could you elaborate a little bit on what that two hour? work week looks like and how someone maybe gets started in the same path. Also, does this count as one of your two hours? <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't count. Yeah. This is a separate, separate business now. So okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I always have to qualify this because like, I literally do work two hours per week. I've tracked it. I don't track it all the time anymore, but you, you probably tell people when they're professional, Hey, you need to track this, track your hours. I've gotten in the habit of tracking my hours and I don't even get, I don't get anywhere close to being a real estate professional. And I'm happy with that. Like I'm good with that because that wasn't my goal in the first place. My goal was to have a passive real estate investing business or a passive enough. And so it wasn't always that way. Like I've had to hustle. Like we, we, I always tell people a rental business starts off like a, like a venture capital startup. Like, a, you know, you're like a Silicon Valley startup where you just got, you have to put a ton of time in. You're working extra hours, weekends, nights. If you don't want to do that, don't get into real estate. Like real estate is all about that. But then the cool thing is it turns from a like a venture capital startup into like a blue chip, easy to manage stock. Like it's it literally is maybe not quite as passive as an index fund, 
But I tell people it's passive enough. Like if I worked two hours per week, I lived in Spain for a year and I was able to pay a couple bills here and there and text with my property manager to take care of some problems. Like my, that was my week. Like my, my week includes talking to my property manager to strategize about stuff. Every once in a while, there's a weird thing, but most of the time it's me having to write a check or pay, you know, hey, take that out of my money. Yep, we got to pay that $5,000 bill. The other thing I spend time on still is bookkeeping, actually. We had a bookkeeper for years. She retired. And so my business partner and I kind of took that back on. We're like, eh, let's just, I know how to do this. Let's do it myself. So between the two of us, you know, maybe two hours for him, two hours for me, we still reconcile our, our bookkeeping. We still you know, we probably need to hire a bookkeeper again. So I think that's on our agenda in the next few months. But um, I like kind of keeping my my eyes on what's going on with that because I, I see it's like the matrix. Like I see my whole business in numbers. And if the numbers change and I'm paying attention to that, I can then ask questions or get involved and have you know more than a two-hour work week if I need to. But the, the whole way that works is having a good team. Like team is number one. You have to have people who manage the properties for you. Like you, somebody's doing the work, even if you're not doing the work, somebody's doing it. And so we have college student rentals. Like somebody has to lease those. Somebody has to show the properties. And so we have a good leasing team. And we, in our pro forma, we estimate that we have to pay them before we make any cash flow for them to manage it. So that's first and foremost. I love my team. We have a couple of different property managers. The second thing, though, is being systematized and organized. And I'm just a stickler for having checklists. Like if you're a pilot on an airplane, you have a checklist when you take off. If you're a doctor doing surgery, you have a checklist saying cut on the left shoulder, not the right shoulder, right? Like why would we as real estate investors not have a bookkeeping checklist or a turnover checklist? And so we just have like an operations manual that we've built over the years with different checklists, with different instructions. And we're not perfect. Like we're always trying to improve that. And I'm trying to learn to get better. But between the team, the systems, and then the third one, which I think is really underrated, is the simplicity of your portfolio. I love the idea of growing a business and being systematized, but I'm a little skeptical because I've been there myself and maybe I'm just not good enough as an entrepreneur, but to be completely passive with a team of like 50 people and having to manage that is always a fire to put out. And so I think the better way to be passive is just to keep it as simple as possible. And that's what the Small Mighty Real Estate Investor book that I wrote, the definition of a small mighty investor is to have the least number of properties possible that accomplishes your financial goals. So whatever the least number is, if you need 120,000 bucks a year, maybe that's 10 properties. If you need $240,000 a year, maybe that's 20. Maybe you want to keep some leverage and maybe you have 30 properties. But the point is, I don't want a 10X. I don't want to be the biggest. I want to be the smallest who also accomplishes all of my financial goals. And But the flip side of that is I feel pretty confident in saying I've got an abundance of free time, which is really what I always wanted. I don't want to have be tied to meetings. I don't want to be tied to having to do something. Me being on this podcast is because this is what I love to do. Like I love to teach. I love to be out there. If I didn't love it, I wouldn't do it. And I love to coach my daughter's volleyball team. I love to volunteer in a local nonprofit we started that's trying to build biking and walking trails in Clemson, South Carolina, because it's almost impossible to walk anywhere, even though we're a small college town. And that frustrated me. So I started a nonprofit with some friends. So like that's the beauty of it. When you have time and flexibility, maybe you want to grow your real estate business and that's cool, but maybe you want to do something that makes zero money, but it's the thing you've always wanted to do and it's meaningful to you and it makes a lot of sense. And because you have an abundance of time, you can choose whatever you want to do. Yeah. Sometimes it's not just all about money or having the biggest net worth. Sometimes it's about impact, right? So that's definitely important. So I, I know you mentioned you had the book, Small and Mighty Real Estate Investor. Is there any takeaways or any key points that readers should know about if they want to check out that book? Yeah, it was, it's, it's everywhere now. It's on Amazon, Bigger Pockets, And I, I'll just say that like when, when you're getting real estate information, 
you, you kind of want two things. At least I did. You know, I, I want to have like the big picture business model. Like, how do I do this? How do I go from zero to the point I'm trying to get to? So like, I've always thought about like when I first started, it was great that I got information from other educators, but I sort of, I didn't think about where the, the, the map that those people were going to. They were telling me how to flip 50 houses per year and they told me how to do it, which is important. Like the tactics are important, but I didn't think about like, what is their objective here? Like what, what's their model? And so I, I would just say the people who would be a good fit for the small, mighty real estate investor are the people in the real estate investing business who prioritize lifestyle who say like, yep, that's why I got in the business. I got in the business because I want to have this abundance of time. I want a plenty of money. I want money to be covered. But like, I, I got into it for the time and the flexibility and the options and the freedom. And I, I happen to think like most people got into the business for that in the first place, but it's not for everybody. Like they're, I'm glad we have the Elon Musk of the world. I'm glad we have these other real estate investors who are like shooting for the moon. Like I'm not downing on them. I'm just saying that's not me. Like I'm, I'm not trying to build the biggest real estate uh, empire possible. And so my heart is with the people who want to build a portfolio. They, they want to get there sooner than later, five to 10 or 15 years, maybe they want to have a game plan to get there. And so that book is sort of, it's like the, it's like the map and then the meat of it, like the hamburger in the middle are the tactics. And here's how you find properties. Here's how you look at the right markets. Here's how you get financing. Here's how you avoid problems with tenants. And here's how you screen them. Well, here's how you build systems. So like, that's all the meat that's really important, but the meat, the tactics are out there. You can listen to podcasts and get tactics. You also got to wrap that up in a, in a strategy and a philosophy that resonates with where you're trying to go. No, absolutely. It makes a ton of sense. If, if listeners wanted to learn more about your book, maybe grab your book or perhaps to work with you, what's the best way for them to go about doing that? So where, where I'm everywhere, if you search Coach Carson, go YouTube, if you listen on podcasts, I have a podcast that comes out every Monday as well. Very tactical, talking a lot about real estate investing. Um, so I would love for people to check me out there, leave a comment on my YouTube videos. That'd be awesome. Uh, if you want the book, if you just search, it's on Audible, it's on Amazon, uh, it's on Bigger Pockets. There's some pretty cool bonuses if you get them on Bigger Pockets. I wrote a, a bonus chapter about how do you be a small and mighty investor in a changing market. So how do you deal with the high interest rates and the fact that just everything's kind of flipped on its head a little bit. And I also did a, a two-hour work week workbook, essentially, where I show actually what I do with my two hours, uh, my my whole week, like it's a little agenda. And the two the Thursdays are typically my my real estate time in the mornings, doing some bookkeeping. But then I have an exercise for people to do to try to create their ideal work week. What would that look like? Like where where would you spend your time? Do you want to be like in the, get all your work done in the morning and then have fun in the afternoon? There's so it's like a it's like a, a palette. You can decide how you want your life to look. We're not victims. If we make money we can then have a, a ton of optionality and decisions of our life. And so that's, I love like starting with that and then working it backwards from that goal. Absolutely. A lot of eye-opening things here today, I think for a lot of listeners who've been swinging for the fences, maybe this will change some people's minds. And uh, one final question before we wrap up, out of curiosity, do you use depreciation to like shelter your, your rental income from tax? In other words, are you paying tax on your rental income or are you able to shelter that through like expenses and depreciation? We had many years there where we paid zero tax on our rental income, but you know, fortunately, we've been we've done well enough that we've now kind of exceeded that sum. Although we still have a, a huge amount of depreciation, but I tell you, what, we haven't been that aggressive. Like we haven't done any kind of uh, cost segregation studies on our properties. We haven't aggressively done it. So I'm sure there's some more 
tax optimization we could be doing here. And but you know, one of the things we're doing now, like my business partner has a successful business outside of real estate. And I I do some extra stuff like with Coach Carson. And this has been like a hobby business for me with Coach Carson. But then over time it makes some money sometimes too. And so part of what we're doing is just sort of like studying people like Warren Buffett. Like one of Warren Buffett's tax strategies is just hold stuff. Like just don't sell it. Right. Like just own it for a long time. If if you own a property that you bought for two hundred thousand and is now worth five hundred thousand at least y'all correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think they're taxing us on our capital gains yet before we sell it. So that's that's a pretty basic tax strategy. Just own stuff. Don't sell right. it. You know, Do a 1031 if you have to. Keep it simple, right? Like I just, I don't want to have a lot of moving parts. I like to you know, just keep it simple. And it's amazing how optimized sometimes simplicity can be. That's what we've been trying to preach recently on this podcast. Because I think everybody, the allure of the large tax savings is certainly there. And, and I think it's, just people don't realize the complexities and the risk that comes with that and also fail to realize that just by owning real estate you're already way ahead of the tax game so it's an important message that you know when you buy a rental property you are already more optimized for taxes than a lot of other people simply because you own investment real estate and it can just be that simple yeah amen Exactly. And then like you just said, like you don't need real estate professional status to make it real estate work for you. So I hope that that point drives home for everybody who's listening and and that resonates with people. But Chad, thanks again for coming on the show today, uh, sharing your knowledge and wisdom with with our listeners. I'm sure uh, some people are definitely going to have some epiphanies listening to this. We'll go ahead and drop uh, your book in the show notes. And thanks again for coming on. It's great to be here, Thomas. Brandon, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.